Well, thank you again. It's nice to be with you uh, this morning. If I told you that I was going to be speaking today from what I think is the most well-known Bible verse in Scotland, I wonder where your mind would immediately go to. John 3.16. Surely that must be the most well-known verse. I'm going to argue that it's not today. I'm going to argue that if perhaps you go to other parts of the world... You might be able to, that might be the answer that you get if you stopped someone and said, what's, the, what's the, the Bible verse that you know best? They might say John 3, 16. One of my earliest memories of youth fellowship growing up in Arbroath is a Sunday night, and it would have been summertime, 1994, Sunday night, all sitting around the TV, not something that we normally did at the youth fellowship, but, but that week that's what we did, and it was the World Cup in America, I can't remember where it was in America, was it Atlanta, I'm not sure, but it was in America somewhere in 1994, and you could see around the stadiums John 3.16, all over the stadiums, in fact a lot of sporting events still in America, you watch the Super Bowl, still you'll see John 3.16, you'll see people like Thibault with uh, written on his, his face uh, in charcoal, in some countries, yeah, you, you ask the most well-known verse, and that's what you'll get in John 3.16. I think if you stop people in the street in Scotland and ask what John 3.16 says, they wouldn't know. That's my, that's my experience, speaking to young people and, and parents that they don't know. I'm going to make a case for this verse being the most well-known. And it's perhaps not even a verse that people can tell you where it's from. It's perhaps not even a verse where they can tell you uh, who said it. But it's a verse that as a Christian I hear quoted to me an awful lot by non-Christians. And you find it in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't, I'm going to read it out, so don't worry. But Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 is where we're going to read today. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 reads, Judge not that you be not judged. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. If we were to ask what the most quoted Bible verse in Scotland is, surely it's Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not. Some people even quote the King James, you know, it's lest you be judged. Amazing that they, that they know the authorised version of this verse when they're rebuking you uh, for speaking truth into their life. It's something you hear all the time. It's the atheist shield. They hold it up and say, judge not that you be not judged in an effort to stop Christians in their judgment, judgmental tracks. You can't speak to me about that. You can't speak to me about sin. Jesus said you can't judge. And that's it. They think, think if they hold up this verse, then that is it. They have won the argument. Judge not that you be not judged. They don't know where it's found. They've got a rough idea that Jesus said it. They definitely don't know who Jesus said it to. But they hold it up as this shield. 
And it's a perfect shield for the culture that we live in today. It just, they just feel it stops those Christians from being able to say what they want to say or what they've been told to say. And the, the reason that we hear the verse quoted so much is this verse is totally at odds with the culture which we live in preaches. You know, we live in a relativistic world where truth is no longer objective, but it's subjective. If you're with me, you've got no idea what I just said. Like, when I wrote that, I was like, I, I'm, not even sure what that, I'm not even sure what that means. But what it roughly means is, is truth is not seen as being an object. Truth isn't something you can grasp. Truth isn't something that you can define. It's subject. It's not objective. It's subjective. Every subject sees it differently. So what's true for me isn't going to be true for you. What I think is wrong, you might think is right. What I think is right, you might think is wrong. The world teaches us that there's no such thing as truth. Please don't nod to that because it's complete rubbish. There is truth. If we want to find truth, we will find it. And we'll find it in one place and one person. The one who says, I am the way, the truth and the life. We find truth in Jesus Christ. We find truth in his word. There's truth to be found. But the problem is people don't want to find it. The truth is not an object. They say the truth isn't an object which can be examined. It can't be understood. It can't be defined. But we know that it can be. You'll find truth in Jesus. You know, we live in a world where it's just so far away from the truth and getting further and further and further away from it. You know, a church with a coffee shop in it is, is my idea of heaven. I, I spend so much of my time in coffee shops. In, in January there, we were gifted a building. We're currently renovating it, but in January um, I got an office uh, and I thought it would be great because I'd save so much money on coffee, not having to work in coffee shops anymore. But I'm still in coffee shops just as, just as much, at least three or four times a, times a week. I'm sitting there going around all the coffee shops in Falkirk. And, you know, I like it because you get part of the culture and the community and you get to know people. But I also like it because I'm really nosy. I love to earwig on people's conversations. My wife's hard of hearing and she's, she can lip read. It's amazing having people with you that can lip read. <laughs> who can tell you what people are saying at the other side of the room. Oh, it's great, particularly if you're in church. What, who are they talking about? Oh, really? The only thing is you've got to remember that when you're at the other side of the room and she's reading your lips, you need to remember what you're speaking about. But I love earwigging in conversations. Um, and you know, when you sit in coffee shops and you earwig, Sometimes it's just so, it's just so soul-destroying. When you hear people openly talking about affairs, pe people talking about divorce as if it's the next best thing. Just divorce them, just move on. You know, we live in a world where, you know, last year we had that news, news article about Ashley Madison, you know, it was a Canadian company whose slogan was, life is short, have an affair. And suddenly this website had all of its clients published and everyone could see who was on this website. And there was many church leaders and there was many Christians, hypocrites, whose names were, on this, names were on this website. The world that we live in, there's just no truth in it. The Ten Commandments used to be no nonsense. Everyone understood the Ten Commandments. Of course, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you, you, you don't covet. It makes perfect sense. The Ten Commandments now... Well, you've got to defend them. It's not common sense anymore. This is the world that we live in. And so, the world says, judge not that you be not judged. You can't talk about what I do. You can't talk about my life. 
Judge not. And it's the argument used by the world. They quote this verse that Jesus says. And you know, a lot of Christians, when they hear this verse, they think, well, that's it. I can't, I can't go any further with this. They're, they're absolutely right. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. But you know, this is something that we quite often get wrong. We don't read the whole passage. We just look at the one verse. Yes, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. But he then goes on to verse 2. And verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Jesus doesn't say don't judge. He says be careful when you do judge. Because the judgment that you use can and will come right back around and slap you in the face. It's that, point the finger at me, you'll have two fingers pointing back. Jesus says we need to be careful when we judge, we need to be careful in our judgments that they can't be used as ammunition against us. Francis Schaeffer is a great theologian and he talked about judging others in this way. He says, imagine when you're born and mystically there's a tape recorder placed around your neck. And as you go about your life and as you make a judgment about your friends, about your families, about your colleagues, anytime you make a judgment about what is right and what is wrong and when people offend you and you try to hold them to a standard... Even the standard you're trying to hold yourself to, it's all recorded on this tape recorder. All of your judgments are. And then on judgment day, when you're standing before God, all God does is plays the tape back and you're condemned or acquitted by your own standard of judgment. How would you do? With the judgments that you've made on, on other people, if those same judgments were applied to your life, would you do good? I don't think I'd do very well. You know, this is the first principle that we have to remember when it comes to judging. We will be judged with the same measure that we have used on others. Verse 3 and 4 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is log, the log in your own eye? Now Jesus is using something which we don't hear very much in some churches, and it's something called humour. Uh, and humour is bereft in some churches, don't, don't, don't know where it is. You know, we think that Jesus, for three and a half years, the biggest miracle is that he never told a joke, apparently. He was just such a serious person, that's how we portray him. He's, he's going around so seriously, he's got thousands of people following him. And if we, think, if we, re, uh, and if we uh, take the, the picture, the portrayal of Jesus that some people give us, he was quite a boring person. It's not true. Jesus is far from boring. And here we have this picture, and it's actually quite a funny picture. Jesus says that we're, we're walking around with a plank of wood sticking out of our eye, obstructing our view when we make judgments. Let's just imagine that for a moment. If we all came into church this morning with a plank of wood sticking out, we'd really struggle with that door there. You know, we'd have to have someone opening up. And you know, when we queue up for coffee, tea and coffee in one hand, the log in the other, we're not going to get... We're not going to get very far. This log is going to do us real trouble. And Jesus is painting that picture. He says, just imagine walking around with everyone with this log in your eye. You're not going to get anything done. It's going to be ridiculous. The first thing that we have to do is you have to get rid of that plank before you can be of any use to anyone. If you want to be use of others in dealing with their sin, which we should want to do, then first we're going to have to wrestle with our own sin. We are called to be more concerned with our own sin than the sin of others. I'll tell you the greatest sinner that I know. I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you anyway. I'll tell you his name. He's called Dave Bremner. 
the greatest sinner that I know is myself. And surely when you look at your own life, the greatest sinner that you know is yourself. When you think about all that you've thought, all that you've felt, all of the rage that you've you've experienced, surely with the way that we know ourselves better than any other, I don't know anyone that's worse than you. I'm not saying there isn't, but I'm saying I don't, I, I know that I'm the worst sinner that I know. I know the things that I struggle with. You know, it's important that you, that you know that. If you think that you're the only person in this church that struggles with sin, you're not. It's a wall that we put up. We, re- we don't tell each other it, but we do. We struggle with sin. We're fallen. We're not perfect. We will be one day because of who Jesus is and what he's done, but we're not today. We are not perfect, and we struggle with sin. And we are called to be more concerned with our own sin than the sin of others. But that doesn't mean that we are not to be concerned with the sin that we see around us. That we're not to be concerned with the the mistakes that we see people making, with the wrong things that we see people doing. But Jesus is saying with this log, we won't be of any use to them until we sort out our own sin. Until we realise where we stand before God. Until we are going through that process of removing the log. And how, And how do you do this? How do you take the log from your eye? Well, it's through a thing called repentance. The only way that we remove the log is through repentance. And repentance, I think, works in four ways. First way is that we are confronted by our sin. We're confronted by the wrong things that we do in our life, the things that take us away from God. We're confronted by that. Secondly, we acknowledge our sin. Thirdly, we turn from our sin. And fourthly, we find forgiveness in God. And repentance is a combination of all four of those things. Quite often we only get to one or two or three or one of the stages here. But repentance is, is all of that combined. We are confronted by our sin. We realise that we are doing wrong. And that comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit is that conscience inside you saying, I don't think you should be doing this. That is the Holy Spirit that does that work in us. He convicts us of our sin. But how often are we convicted of our sin and we go off and we do it anyway? Because we're so enslaved to our sin that even the Holy Spirit convicting us doesn't stop us. Because we're so enslaved, we still go. We need to be confronted by our sin and we need to acknowledge it. We need to acknowledge, you know what, this is a problem. I can't keep on living like this. I can't keep on doing this. I need to stop. We need to confront our sin. We need to acknowledge our sin. Then we need to turn from our sin. This is actually what the word repentance means. It means to turn. We need to turn from our sin. To stop going our own way. And to go God's way. To say this is a problem. This is stopping me from living my life. I'm going to turn and I'm going to do something about it. And the fourth and the most precious aspect of repentance. Is when we find forgiveness in God. When we don't worry about that sin anymore because we know that it's dealt with. We know that Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin and the shame that goes alongside it on the cross. We don't have to worry about it anymore. That's what I think we're talking about when we talk about repentance. (coughs) And this is what repentance is. But, you know, I was always taught, I can't remember anyone telling me anything about repentance other than it was once in a lifetime. You repent and you're saved and there's truth in that when you repent you find salvation when you repent you are saved from your sins you don't have to worry about them anymore they will not stop you from getting to heaven they won't stop you from a relationship with God but repentance is not a once in a lifetime thing repentance is a monthly, weekly, daily 
aspect of Christian living. Repentance is something that we should be doing repeatedly, progressively. The closer we get to Christ, the more we should be repenting. Because the closer we get to the light, the more we see the blemishes and the spots and the wrong in our own life. And we realize, I need to do something about this. I need to stop this. I, I, I need to get rid of this. And I know lots of people might disagree with that, but it's what I honestly believe, that repentance is something that surely is daily. Surely every day we wake up and we see, I, I need to do something about this. If I'm going to grow closer to Christ. Repentance is the primary act of sanctification, which is a big word, which means being more and more like Christ. It's what we're called as Christians to do, to be sanctified in the Spirit, to be more and more and more like Jesus Christ. If you say you are saved, you've taken Christ for your Saviour, but you are less like Christ than you were when you were saved, then something is wrong in your life. You're going the wrong way. We should be getting more and more and more like Jesus Christ, not less and less like him. So if we're going to be sanctified, it comes through authentic repentance. And we can't grow without it. And that's how we remove the plank. Slowly by slowly, we start, take, we start dealing with our own sin and we take it away. And that way, when we approach people with planks in their eyes or specks in their eyes, we're not approaching them as hypocrites because we're saying, look, I've dealt with this. I've done it. I've been, I know what you're feeling. I know how hard this is. But that's how we remove the plank. We get into this rhythm of repentance. And when we do that, we're better equipped to go with courage and to take the speck. Because we go and we serve the broken as broken people. When we serve the broken, we must go as broken people. Realising that no one is any worse than me. So many people go and try and serve the broken as righteous people. And from up high, they will reach down and they will pull people from the gutter. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because you're reaching down as a hypocrite. You are right alongside them. The only reason that you are out of that gutter is not because of anything that you have done. It's not because of any work that you have put in. It's because Jesus has lifted you out. And the only person that will reach, lift the other person out of the gutter is Jesus. It is not you. All you can do is say, look, I'm broken. But this is what Jesus did to me. We must serve the broken as broken people. That's, and that's how we re remove, uh, remove the plank. Attitude is everything. And our attitude should show humility. Only through this process can we gain clarity to see the problem clearly. So we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that Jesus doesn't want us to judge. Jesus does want us to judge. The atheist would tell us uh, he wouldn't. But the atheist doesn't tell us much that makes sense. So we shouldn't listen to that. In fact, the very opposite is true. Jesus says that we should judge. So let's have a look at how, how we should judge. And the first question that we're going to answer is, is where we should judge. And the passage that we've read from this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 7, and it's part of this Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are three amazing chapters of Matthew's Gospel, three amazing chapters of the Bible. They're absolutely amazing, but... They have a tendency to be over-exaggerated. In liberal churches... Chapter 7. Uh, in liberal churches, the uh, Sermon on the Mount tends to be over-exaggerated a little bit. They tend to strip all the gospel from it. They tend to strip all the sin from it. And just look at this as a nice way to live. Then we come into some uh, conservative circles where the Sermon on the Mount is, is underappreciated. 
How many times have you heard someone preach on these verses? I, I could count it on one hand. The amount of times I've heard someone preach on judge not, that you be not judged. They tend to be, and I come from conservative circles, so that's probably why. Uh, but you tend not to hear this. In the sermon, Jesus tells us of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus tells us to remove the speck from our brother's eye, he's telling us that judgment is limited to within the kingdom of heaven. We don't judge in the world. Out there, we shouldn't be known for being a judgmental people. In here, we should. In here, we should be quite willing, quite confident, quite able to deal with and confront sin. Out there... We shouldn't be, no, that should, we shouldn't be what we are known for. Judgment within the kingdom of this world, judgment out there, it doesn't get us very far. Why would it in a world where people are sitting in coffee shops talking about their affairs, talking about their divorces, talking about all of the, the things in their, in their life that are separating them, getting further and further away from God? Why would judgment in that world get us very far when gossip, cheating and lying are second nature? It doesn't get us far at all. No, the judgment of this world is, is the judgment of this world is not for us to worry about as Christians. It's not for us to, to, to concern us about ourselves about why? Because they have another judge, and it's not us. The people who are outside the kingdom of God have another judge. His name is Jesus. He came to save them. He gave his life for them. He laid it down so that if they came to him in repentance and in faith, they would be saved and they would do nothing of his judgment. But if they've rejected that, then they will meet Jesus as judge. He will be their judge, not us. They have a judgment day which we will know nothing of. Jesus tells us to remove the speck, but where does he tell us to remove it from? Our brother's eye. Our brother's eye. If you're, if you're worried about who your brother, if you're unclear about who your brother or your sister is, look, turn to your right or your left. These, these are your brothers and your sisters. You're sitting with them right now, stand, standing right in front of you. I'm your brother. If you see sin in my life, it's your responsibility to come and say, Dave, I'm worried about this. I see this and I'm worried about that. And it's my responsibility to say, yeah, I'm going to do something about that. Yeah, I appreciate you telling me that. Which is really hard. I, I hate criticism. I really, oh, I just don't do well with it at all. Even when people come to you in the friendliest of ways with the, the biggest smile, Dave, I think you're doing that wrong. Oh, do you? Oh I, don't, oh, I don't do well with it. But you know, part of my growing, part of my sanctification is, is realising, do you know what, I need to be open to people telling me and sharing with me. Because if that message has been given to them through the Spirit, then I need to be ready to listen to them. So your brothers and your sisters are, are, are the people around about you. Your prom, primary responsibility lies right here. You may have reason, you may be called to judge someone out with the group, but, but primarily Jesus says this is where judgment should be exercised. Uh, and we'll get back to this as we come to the end of our passage. So that's where we should judge, but, but how should we judge? There's two words best describe how we should judge. First is carefully, and the second is thoroughly. Carefully, this will not be an easy message to deliver when we go to someone and we say, I'm worried about this. I don't know how many times you've been asked to remove a speck from someone's eye, but normally it starts with an invitation. You don't tend to go up to someone on the bus and say, 
you know, it doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't get you very far. When I go into um, Lily's room, my two-year-old, uh, during the winter when she's got a bad cold, she's been up all night, she's got snorters coming down her face, she's been rubbing them into her eyes, and you wake, and she wakes up and it's something like out of a horror movie with this green face, and you go in and you try and start to clear her eyes a little bit. It never goes well. She ne- she's never lying there going, thank you, Daddy, I appreciate that. That's, that's, you know, she's squirming and she's shouting and she's, oh, she's not enjoying it at all. And she doesn't realise that what I'm doing is best for her. That once, it, once it's removed, she'll be able to see clearly. So perhaps before we go in and start removing the specks, we need to start a process. Perhaps there's going to need to be some healing before you're invited to go in and deal with the problem. Perhaps you're going to need to be willing to do this over a long period of time, that you're not just going to rush in and deal with it and take it all away. Perhaps there's going to need to be some wisdom there in terms of how you deal with it. We need to be careful. Secondly, we need to be thorough. There's no point in half dealing with the problem, which we quite often do. Quite often we'll try and we'll help without wanting to overstep our position. We won't want to cause offence. But the job requires us to respond thoroughly, leaving no one in any doubt that the speck has been removed. Of course, it's possible to be too thorough and not at all careful. And this is when someone brings the claw hammer to remove the speck. This is when someone attacks the motives of the sin rather than the sin itself. Which brings us to what we should judge. Now we can't make a definitive list here of what we should and what we should not judge. The main point that I want to make is to say that we can't judge people's motives for sin. We can't judge people's motives. Why? Because we don't know them. The sin in my life, I don't know my motivation. I don't know why I do that. I don't know why I keep on doing it. I don't know the motivation that is there. But quite often we assume that we know why that person is doing that thing. Only God understands people's motives. John, Jesus tells us in John chapter 7 verse 24, don't judge by external experience, appearance, make a righteous judgment. And he's talking about the realm of motives. There's a word that I learned when I was looking into this text and that the word is a suicide. I don't know if you've heard that word. But a suicide is when you make a judgment, an assumption, sorry, about a person's motives. And that kills the relationship, kills any chance of having a, a connection with that person. It's all lost because you've made a wrong assumption. I do this with young people all the time. I work in schools, deliver mentoring programs, working with young people that are you know, so challenging in the classroom that teachers really don't know what to do with them. So they come out and they spend some time with me eh, and some of our volunteers um, and we work through some of these issues. And quite often when we meet these children for the first time or we see them, we see them acting out, screaming, shouting, punching and kicking children and other children in the classroom, swearing at their teachers, uh, you know, just doing all sorts of, of, of nonsense. And we just sit there and the first assumption is to go, who does this kid think he is? Or she? Who do they think they are doing that? Do they not realise the country that they do they not realise all the privilege that they have been in this beautiful school with these people in front of them, uh, you know, giving them all of this time and this affection? Do, who do they think they are? And when you sit with them for the first for the first time, when you've got those kind of thoughts going through your head, you don't have much love there, and you don't have much patience for them. And then suddenly, after a few weeks, few months, they start to tell you their story, and they start to tell you about, you know, the suicides that they've witnessed. They start to tell you about times where they've, you know, there's one young boy I worked with, he came home from day one, he came home from school one day, his parents had moved out and didn't tell him where he was going. 
I know I wondered why he was kicking off in school the next day. You'll make assumptions about people's motivations. That they're, just, they're just doing it because they want to act out. They're just doing it because they want to be the top kid. They're just doing it for this or that. When we make assumptions, we really, really ruin any chance of having a positive relationship with anyone. It's so important that we don't assume. Now, that doesn't mean that when somebody does something or, or doesn't do something, when they say something or don't say something, that you're appuning a, a motive to why or they did or didn't do that. We say, well, they did this because. That's what we should never do. That's a suicide. That's you judging and we're told never to do that. We can only judge people's actions because actions and consequences of actions, they're the only things that we can see. That's the only thing that we have to work with. So these are the things that we can see. And if they contradict the word of God, then we can and we should judge these things within the kingdom of God, within the church. Things like sexual immorality, things like gossip. Gossip's a big one, isn't it? You know, when I was growing up, I always, I always assumed that the women were the worst gossips. And now I'm older and wiser, and no way. It, the men are the worst gossips. Absolutely. They do it in a different way. But still, it's the men that gossip like mad. Anger. Anger is a sin. Anger separates us from God. Ang slander, lying, drunkenness, dishonest business practice, arrogance, insecurity. Insecurity separates us from God. As, as we take the burden of salvation off of Jesus and we put it on our own shoulders, as we say, I need to do this in order to win God's favour. We don't need to do anything. Jesus has done it. We need to put our trust in him. These are all things that separate us from God. These are things that are wrong. They're not in keeping with one who Christ has loved and died for. And all these things have consequences. The way we live our life has consequences. And don't think they don't. Even if your sin, even if the things that you're doing in your life that are getting you further and further away from God, even if they're doing, being done in private, they still have a real consequence to you. They'll affect the way you are with your family. They'll affect the way you are with your church. They'll affect the way you are with your friends, with your colleagues. Jesus tells us that these things have consequences. Matthew 12 verse 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. What kind of fruit are you producing in your life? Is it good or is it bad? Or is there any there at all? If they're not, if it's not there, it's quite possibly sin that's stopping you from, from growing fruit. Dr. James McGinley says, I am no judge, but I am a fruit inspector. What does your fruit reveal about the life that you're living or aren't living for God? Who should, who should we judge? We already said it's your brother. Let me briefly come back to that. Jesus makes it clear that we should judge our brother. Not our brother's wife, not our friend, not our elder. This isn't something that should be done second or third hand. It should be done directly. It's not a blog post. It's not a Facebook update. How often do you see that? Oh, so-and-so. I can't believe so-and-so has done this. I can't believe blank. And dealing things with, with things online. It's so destructive. We should be going face-to-face -face with people. We should be having real, loving conversations. We should be praying that, um, praying for that person. And this is what friendship is. 
It's real, personal, in-your-face, loving friendship. That's what we're talking about this morning. It's hard, messy, grueling friendship. And that causes most of us to say, do you know what, let's just forget it. Let's just not deal with it. Well, just in closing, let me tell you four reasons that um, Darren Patrick, who's a, a pastor of a church called The Journey in uh, St. Louis in America, gives for four main reasons what, what, he, what he gives for people not judging. The first is that we're not broken enough to care about others' brokenness. We're not broken enough ourselves to care about others' brokenness. We don't realise the danger of sin. We don't realise that sin will separate us from God for eternity and will send us to hell for eternity. We're not broken enough to care about the, the sin around about. We're not confident in our own responsibility. We're not confident in our responsibility to, to our brothers and sisters. We believe it's the elder's job. We believe it's their best friend's job. It's their husband or their wife's job. It's not my job. But the sin's been revealed to you. You can see the speck. No one else can. So it's your job. It's your responsibility to remove the speck. The other is that we want others' approval too much. We want others' approval too so much that we're not willing to go and have that conversation for fear that the relationship is damaged. And finally, we don't want to be accountable. If we point that finger, we don't want it pointing back. We're terrified that people see into our own lives and they see something much worse. The final verse that we read is verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What on earth has happened? First five verses made perfect sense and suddenly we're talking about dogs and, and pearls and pigs. We're left with this final verse that just doesn't seem to fit in. But we have to remember Jesus' audience and remember Matthew's audience as well as he's writing this gospel. Matthew is writing to, relig to the religious Jews of the day. Mark's writing to Romans, Luke to the Gentiles and John to the Greeks. But Matthew's writing to these Jews. And when a Jew heard about dogs and pigs, they were slanderous terms. They were pretty much like swear words of today. To people who were outside the camp, away from God, outside the Jewish religion. And Jesus again is saying that this act of judgment shouldn't be what the church is known for. There will be times when we have to judge and stand up for what we believe is right in our country. There will be times where we have to stand up to Parliament. There will be times where we have to stand up uh, to, to leaders around about us. But primarily, this should all be exercised within the church. If we get this right, we're going to be so busy dealing with the sin in our own church that we might not have time to deal with the sin outside. It's not right that the church should be known for being so intolerant of the sin of the world and so tolerant of our own sin. So who should we judge, brothers and sisters in Christ? Where? Within the church and not out with. What? Sin. Actions, not motives. And why? Out of love and compassion. How? Carefully and thoroughly. And gospel opportunities don't come from making judgments. They don't come from pushing people away. They come from drawing people in. They come from an understanding that we are all great sinners in need of a great saviour. And that the marvellous truth is that mercy will triumph over judgment for those who call their Christ, Christ their Lord and Saviour. Judgment doesn't bring anyone out of the darkness and into the light, but it does make our light shine brighter when we lovingly remove the speck from our brother's eyes and compassionately encourage them to walk closer with Jesus. So my prayer 
for you and for me is that we will be more confident in our standing before God that we'll be a repentant people who are regularly removing the log from our own eye and with that experience we'll be able to help those around us with humility, clarity and courage we really pray that this few thoughts in this, these verses have uh, spoken to us this afternoon if you've been sitting here all, all morning and wondering this isn't this isn't for me. He keeps on saying this is for Christians and, and, and that's not for me. I really hope that as we've talked about this love that we as Christians have experienced, this hope that we have, this forgiveness that we've found, that you realise that you can have this too. That you too can experience this Jesus who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. Let's just pray together. Father, we just really thank you for the time that we've had in your word this morning. We thank you for those gathered here. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought them here, Father. It hasn't been themselves. It hasn't been anyone else. It has been you and your spirit that has brought them to this place, that has brought them to hear from your word. And, Father, we just pray, Lord, that as these uh, words have been read and spoken, Father, that your spirit will just speak truth and light into their lives, Father. We pray, Lord, for anyone who's struggling with sin, Father. We pray, Lord, that you might just help them to start that repentance experience, Father. That they might just get into that rhythm of dealing with the things in their life that are separating them from you, Father. We pray, Lord, for those who are looking for joy in all the wrong places. Father, may they know that the greatest joy is found in Christ. Father, that removing the log may be hard and may be painful, but at least such joy and at least to such comfort, Father. We thank you for this. We pray, Lord, for those here this morning who perhaps have had other people's sins revealed to them, other specks. We pray, Lord, that you might give them the courage to go and to deal with that, Father, in a loving, genuine manner, Father. We pray, Lord, that we would be known as brothers and sisters of Christ who love each other so much that we wouldn't be able to stand the sight of sin. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us in that. And finally, Father, we just pray, Lord, for those who are sitting here, who are still in the darkness, who have never seen the light. Father, bring them into the light, we pray. May they know that there is a better life. May they know that in you they have peace, they have comfort, they have all that they've been made for, Father. We pray, Lord, your spirit would just speak that truth into their life, Father. We thank you for the time that we've had. Bless it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.